We're in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. If you'll follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read these verses. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. This is Paul's prayer. And as we look today, I want us to look at this passage from a perspective that perhaps if you've grown up in church, maybe you've not been reminded of lately, or if you haven't grown up in church, that you would understand the idea of prayer that Paul is putting forth here. Thus, if you want to follow along in your note sheet, the title is Christian Prayer. Let me make it absolutely clear, not every prayer is a Christian prayer. Not every prayer is a Christian prayer. And if we step back in history, we oftentimes forget, maybe because of our familiarity with the Word of God, that Paul was writing to people who were first-time Christians. They knew what prayer was. Folks, Christianity didn't corner the market on prayer. Prayer was taking place long before Jesus Christ ever walked the face of this earth. But it wasn't Christian prayer. And it wasn't to God Almighty. That's an important distinction. And as you may perhaps be thinking in your mind now, oh yeah, I want to encourage you today with what Paul was teaching the early church in his prayer and about Praying. You see, in the first century Roman world, the religion of the day was in stark contrast to Christianity. Oh, they prayed, but they prayed to different gods for different things. Like I said, they, the Roman Empire was praying long before Christ ever came along. And these believers, especially in this part of the world, which would be modern day Turkey the city of Ephesus, their understanding of prayer would have only come from a pagan perspective. So for Paul to not only say he was praying for them, but what he was praying for them was a great lesson for them to learn. And obviously, if it was a lesson for them to learn, I trust that we will learn from it as well. Let me just quickly walk through some historical perspective of this first century day and age of the recipients of this letter. And these are primarily secular sources. Michael Grant, in his book called The History of Rome, says the Pax Deorum was a Roman pagan religious conception in which the divine powers and human beings worked in harmony. This harmony was maintained through a complex system of altar and temple sacrifices and prayers. 
He also states this harmony was based upon a relationship of reciprocity. In other words, you do for me and I'll do for you. In which works of praise and sacrifices of man would obligate protection and blessing from the particular gods. Lowercase g. See, they were already praying. They were already what they thought they were worshiping. Prayer was nothing new. Paul was introducing to them this idea of Christian prayer as he spoke of and as well as he prayed for them. See, the object of a Roman pagan prayer was aimed at a multitude of gods. It all depended on what you want. There were different gods for this and different gods for that and different gods for crops and different gods for whatever. And at best, these gods were emotional and unknowable because you never were certain if they would accept your sacrifice and your prayers or not. You had to wait and see as to the outcome if you were praying for good crops. Did we get good crops? I mean, so there wasn't even that certainty going forth. And at least this multitude of gods, this pantheon as it's called, was unpredictable. And certainly none of them was seen as all-powerful. Because being different gods, they had different parts of the world or the universe or of human beings that they had control over. You probably can already see the difference in pagan prayer and Christian prayer. And these pagan gods responded due to whether or not they felt like accepting the sacrifice or not. Very unpredictable. In a sense, though, as the historian, which I quoted earlier, made clear, there was this idea of obligation if the sacrifice or the prayer was right. Otherwise, they didn't have to respond. Maybe you made a mistake in the words you were saying or in the offering that you were bringing. David Peterson, in his book, Engaging with God, writes that, or describes the function of pagans as a prescribed ritual necessary in order to benefit individuals, families, cities, and the wider community, or to prevent some disaster from occurring. So that was the purpose in their prayers to all these different gods for all these different reasons. The Roman pagan prayers were often phrased in legal terms with the hope of the one offering them, bringing the God to whom they were praying to this point of, oh, well, if he said that, then I have to do this. There's an example given by R.M. Ogilvy in regards to a man named Cato who was praying to Mars who oversaw the crops, the god Mars, lowercase g. And he writes this, Many Roman prayers were formulated in order to address every possible detail and foreseeable disaster in order to protect the land from that disaster and to prevent the gods from ill motivation and obligating their protection. So you see how much was tied up in these first century brand new believers in their understanding of prayer. Florence DuPont writes, in some, S-U-M, in some, Roman religious life revolved around a complex form of polytheism in which there was a particular God associated with a particular action in place. In this system, the role of the person was to pray, 
to sacrifice and to obligate the gods for their own benefit and from their own action. So just from these few examples, hopefully we're brought to this understanding of what these original recipients of what Paul was writing about prayer would have seen as different than what Paul was writing. How was it different? Well, you can begin by going back to verses 3 through 14. And in verses 3 through 14, we see this incredible explanation, this incredible doxology of praise of who the one true God is. But people in these pagan religions were praying long before Christ and the New Testament came about. And Paul's previously Roman pagan religious audience would have been raised with what was just described. Making sure they had the right God, they were saying the right words, and they were offering the right sacrifice in hopes that the deity into which they were praying would respond in the way that they were looking for. Paul's prayer, however, is this. Look at your text. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe in accordance with the working of the strength of his might which he brought about in Christ. There's no ambiguity there. There's no uncertainty there. It's praying for who God is and what God has done being made known to us all based on what Christ has done. And let me tell you what Christ has done has a period at the end of it. It's settled. And that was Paul's prayer for them. So in complete opposition to what these pagan religions and probably many of these brand new Christians would have understood in regards to prayer, we can learn from this text that Christian prayer is what Paul was revealing. And with the obvious contrast that you may already know, I want to make four quick points in regards to the difference between pagan prayer and Christian prayer. And be careful and pay attention. Because some of these elements would reveal to us, if we were honest, we've been praying some pagan prayers. There is only one true God. Number one, God is in control. Does that direct your prayers? Are we always praying with the understanding that God is in control? I mean, have some of us approached God with this almost overly concerned of, God, are you certain you understand how deep I'm in here? Let me tell you, God not only knows how deep you're in, he knows what the results are going to be. Number one, God is in control. Look at verses 8 through 10. We're going to walk back through what Paul has taught up to this point of his praying. In verses 8 through 10 of chapter 1, In all wisdom and insight, he, God, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, Christ, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on the earth. In other words, 
Everything's adding up to the exact sum that God's going to bring about when he's done. That's what Paul's saying. And he's doing all this, letting us know ahead of time, by his kind intention, what he's purposed in Christ and the result. See, this is all about God's will. (laughs) I'm certain none of us have ever prayed, God, I want to somehow get you to do what I want. Certainly none of us. We all know someone who's prayed that way, but certainly we haven't. It's all about God's will. It's God making known the mystery of his will. Whose will? God's will. God's will, God's administration, and God's plan. Folks, nothing is going to happen in all of creation outside of what God has planned. Do we believe that when we pray? Oh, well, you know, i kind of been out of sorts for a while, so maybe God needs to be caught up on where I am and what's happening to me. No, he knows. He knows exactly what you're going through. And all of his will, administration, and plan will be summed up in Christ. And not just summed up in Christ, but look at what the apostle says. On earth and in heaven. God has a plan, and God is in control, and God really doesn't need your help in administering it. But we don't oftentimes pray that way, do we? We pray like the pagans, thinking, well, uh, maybe I need to knock on God's door and just let him know specifically where I am and, and what I need, and here's how it'll work out best for me. Not only does God not need any of that, that's identical to a pagan prayer. Did did you hear the descriptions earlier of the pagan prayers? Christian prayer understands that God's will, God's intent, and all that God has planned and is administering in Christ will come about just as God has planned. That's the approach of Christian prayer. It's somewhat eerily silent in here because we rarely pray that way, I believe. Number two, not only is God in control, God is is not in any way undecisive. Um. God's not waiting for you to do something for him to make up his mind. God's not waiting to see what kind of sacrifice or offering you may bring for him to decide, oh, well, okay, then I'll respond in this way. That's the way the pagans viewed prayer. Folks, not only is God in control, God already knows what's going to happen, and he's already going to work it all out to his administration, his plan, And the summing up of all things in Christ. Let me put it this way. God is constant. (laughs) Now all the stuff you're going through goes up and down, sure. But how much more reassuring should it be to us that in the midst of my mountaintops and valleys, God is constant. He's forevermore the same. He is faithful. He does not sleep. He does not slumber. See, The historians have noted how whimsical and inconsistent 
and unbalanced and unpredictable the Roman pantheon of pagan gods were. When we come understanding that God is in control, let us also pray to God with this understanding of he doesn't need any coercing. (laughs) He doesn't need us to help him make up his mind. Children, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It goes something like this. Hey, I said something to mom and dad about going and getting ice cream tonight. Now, if you'll go in there and say, maybe we can win them over. Parents, I know you know exactly what I'm talking about. God doesn't need that. God's already got the plan. It's all worked out, and he's revealed it to us, revealed it to us in Christ. Look at verse 3, starting in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Do you think some of those difficulties you're going through might be God trying to work out some of the unholiness in you? Uh, There's a theological word for it. It's called sanctification. God's conforming you, as Romans 8 says, to the image of his son. We saw this morning in our Bible study that even through enduring the cross... Jesus Christ saw the joy that was set before him. So understand that through Christ, God has made known to us everything we need to know. He's blessed us in Christ. If you continue reading from verse 3 on, he's blessed us in Christ. He's chosen us in Christ. He loves us. He has adopted us. He has bestowed and lavished his richness upon us in Christ. He has redeemed us, and he has forgiven us. That's God's plan that he's working out. All of this according to the riches of his grace, the Apostle Paul mentions. Do you see any uncertainty in this description of God? (laughs) So don't feel like you have to coerce him with your prayers. Folks, nothing is more secure and concrete than what God has done for us in Christ. And the Apostle Paul goes on to say that he's even sealed us by his Holy Spirit. Any comparison between pagan gods of the first century and the eternal God who planned and purposed all of this even before the foundation of the world has just been obliterated according to God's word. But wait. There's more. You should have known that because there's four blanks and you've only filled out two of them. Number three, God is not under any obligation to anyone. God is not under any obligation to anyone. The fact that you got up and got out of bed this morning breathing the air that God created in the lungs that God created, which is causing your body, which God created, to operate, you should just be grateful to God for the very fact that you're living. And it's not under any obligation of God. It's something God spoke into being, and it's just happening. It's just happening because of what God decreed. God is not under any obligation to anyone. And yet that wasn't the view in praying to the pagan gods, you know, 
everything they offered to the pagan gods was in hope that we could somehow get an obligatory response that, well, certainly if I do this, then that particular god is going to respond this particular way. Verses 11 and 12 of chapter 1. We have obtained an inheritance. Let me put it to you this way. What God has for you, God has for you. And it's an inheritance. Now again, children and adults alike. If you've had older loved ones pass away, you may understand this concept of an inheritance. Let me tell you why you get an inheritance. Because the person who passed away gave it to you. You don't believe me? Talk to family members who get bent all out of shape because great uncle so-and-so took me out of his will. Well, you know what? What great uncle so-and-so had wasn't yours to start with. And maybe great uncle so-and-so took you out of his will because of something you did. That's the way the pagan gods operate. What the apostle Paul is telling us here is, look, God's already got an inheritance for you. You can't undo that. We have, an, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. And here's how I say you can't undo it. According to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Nothing against attorneys, but there's no group of attorneys that's going to take God's inheritance to a probate court and fight it. Because God is working according to his will. God's carrying out what he has purposed from the beginning. According to his will, he's guaranteeing his promised inheritance to those that are his. God's plan, God's inheritance is a done deal, not to be changed, altered, or any exceptions made because of you or anyone else. I mean, how incredible is that? Even as knuckleheaded as you have the potential to be, God's not going to take you out of the will as a child of His. And number four, not only is God not under any obligation to anyone, but number four, God will be worshiped. You know, the pagan gods. And the people who offered sacrifices and prayers to the pagan gods, there was this kind of bargaining system, like one of the previous writers that we quoted said, trying to put their prayers in terms that would obligate a certain response. Well, let me tell you something God's going to be worshiped, and his worship is not dependent on whether you or anyone else feels like it. God's worship is not going to be false. Now, you can wrongly worship God, but that's not worship. True worship of God. It was in one of our songs that we sang earlier, a quote from the book of Revelation. There are created beings around the throne of God constantly saying hallelujah. Because God is going to be worshipped, and he's going to be worshipped properly. His worship isn't dependent on you. It isn't dependent on any false manner and especially any false manner of worship in an attempt to obligate or manipulate God. God will be worshipped. See, in the pagan religions, they would 
try and offer a sacrifice or they would try and pray a prayer uncertain if this was something that the God small g that they were offering it to would even accept it. Folks, the Bible's clear how we're to praise God. And that's the way God will be praised. He predestined us in in chapter 1, verse 5, verse 12, and verse 14. He predestined us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. That's how he's worshipped. He's worshipped by what Christ has done and those to whom are saved because of Christ and those by whom are saved because of what Christ has done. That's how God is worshipped. In verse 12, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. God's worship is centered in Christ and what Christ has done. And then in verse 14, all of this, all that the Apostle Paul had said up to this point, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to what? The praise of his glory. Glory. God's already assured himself that he will be praised and that he will be glorified. Jesus prayed it in John chapter 17. He said, Father, I I give to you the glory that you gave to me so that what I'm getting ready to do will in end ultimately glorify you. God is glory. All God's getting is what he through creation is being brought back to himself. And the pinnacle of that is what he has done in Christ. See, any of our true worship towards God is only a result of God's doing. It's not dependent on whether you feel like it or not. We spoke of the apostles' praise in these earlier verses. And it all has to do with who God is. That's how God's worshipped. See, there's such an incredible difference between pagan prayer and Christian prayer. And these who would receive and hear these Holy Spirit-inspired words of Paul were hearing something that was so different than what they were used to. In fact, in the city of Ephesus, in the ancient world, it contained what was known as the seventh wonder of the world, and that was the temple to Artemis. And it was one of those places where they would practice Roman pagan religious rituals and prayers. So those of Ephesus who came to Christ for the first time were seeing something completely different than what they had been brought up with. This is serious stuff. And Paul's prayer for them specifically is that they would know this hope of which they had never possessed before. Because the hope was in all that God had done through Christ. Every time they went to worship, they weren't certain how things were going to turn out with the pagan God to whom they were making prayers and offerings to. Paul's prayer is that they would know this hope. And Paul's prayer is that they would know the riches of God's glory. Because of what God has done in Christ. And that's what Paul prays for them. That they would know the greatness of God's power. In contrast to the whimsical pagan gods. 
He prays this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know the hope of his calling, that is God's calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in his saints, and the surpassing greatness of his power towards those who believe, all of which were uncertainties for the pagans. They didn't know if the God was they didn't know if the God to whom they were praying would answer them, so they had no hope. They didn't know if the God to whom they were praying was going to do any good for them or not. And they certainly didn't know or didn't have any assurance of the surpassing greatness of the power of the pagan gods to which they were praying. And yet Paul in his prayer for them is praying that they would know the one true God in contrast to what they knew in pagan prayer. That's the greatness of God in utter and complete contrast to the pagan gods. All that God does is to the praise of his glory. And to know God should lead you to pray to that end. Stop praying pagan prayers. I didn't say stop taking your difficulties to God. But take your prayers to God with the view of what this scripture teaches us. And those of you who are facing life's struggles today, don't just pray that everything will work out okay. Pray that God's will and his purpose is worked out according to what he's planned in Christ. If you're in a relationship that's difficult, or maybe some other impossible place that there seems no way out, don't pray that you just get out, but pray that through this difficulty, you'll have a view of the redemption of God as his own possession to the praise of his glory. And if there's any other uncertainty in your life, pray that the wisdom and revelation of Christ would be brought about so that you'll have the eyes of your heart enlightened based upon your hope in Christ. Go back and read it. That's what our text just said. Sadly, though, some of us don't take prayer seriously. And I'm not certain why, and I'm not about to guess, because it could be different for each and every one of us in here. But I want you to hear how the psalmist summarizes it in his crying out to God. Hear my cry, O God. Give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. Well, how many times do we feel faint? Call out to God. And listen to what the psalmist writes. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a refuge for me, a tower of strength. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. That's a godly prayer. That's what we as believers should be praying as Christians. You can pray, we can pray in Christ and have the confidence that God has already done all that he's going to do in Christ. Thus our assurance of praying in Christ. And let me set you free from any feeling you may have of the need to appease God. Number one, nothing you can do will appease him. Number two, he's been satisfied by the death of Christ on Calvary's cross. 
And God has no other plan for you than what he has already worked out according to Christ. There's a difference, folks, between pagan prayer and Christian prayer. And I trust that today we will know that difference. I'm going to ask, I'm going to say a brief prayer in closing. And there's some folks here who would love to pray with you, some in leadership from our church, that in just a moment I'm going to ask them to step forward. And and if while we sing the song that we're going to sing in just a moment, you may just want to pray for something, share with them, or just ask them to pray for you what Paul prayed for the Ephesians. So join me if you would in a word of prayer.